Welcome to Reroute. This is Gavin Wilhite. Today, we get to talk to Matthew Canham. Matt is the CEO of Beyond Layer 7, a consultancy that assists with cybersecurity analytics and culture development, as well as a senior director of operations at the security company Konsu. He previously worked as a professor of cybersecurity at the University of Central Florida, and he served as the program manager of the Emerging Technologies Program for the FBI's Operational Technology Division. While there, he evaluated new technologies for use in law enforcement. And as a special agent, he investigated cybercrime, intellectual property theft, and insider threats. Today, we'll dive into topics including information warfare during the Russian invasion of Ukraine, securing against social engineering attacks, and alternatives to law enforcement for fighting cybercrime. So sit forward, listen in, and enjoy our conversation with Matthew Cannon. Today, I'm here with Matt Canham. Welcome, Matt. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, uh, today, uh, looking forward to talking to you about you know security and you know a little bit about the state of the world and what's going on. Um, I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of uh, introduction about uh, kind of how you made your way from you know, more law law, uh, law enforcement intelligence uh, to the civilian world and kind of how you got your interest in cybersecurity. Sure, sure. Well, um, my uh, my background originally uh, was in uh, psychology, uh, focused in cognitive neuroscience, and uh, as a graduate student, I was uh, already thinking about uh, applying for the FBI, and um, so I started uh, reading uh, material that I thought might help prepare me for that. And at that time, I knew really nothing about cybersecurity. I mean, literally nothing. And I came across um, uh, Kevin Mitnick's uh, book, oh, yeah. uh, Art of Deception. Okay. And yeah, yeah. Uh, that that really piqued my interest because he broke it. He broke the techniques down according to some of the social influence principles that uh, uh, Dr. Robert Cialdini talks about, and those I was very familiar with. And so later, I, I uh, got to the FBI, became a special agent, and uh, sort of sorry, raised... real fast was that was that Mitnick that you were saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah Mitnick. Yeah, I'm sorry. that's right. Okay, no, you're right. Yeah, yeah, I, I misunderstood. Yeah, that guy. That's all the social engineering, right? Yeah. So there's a there's another uh, gentleman by the name of uh, Chris Hadnagy who's out there. And his book actually came out after I was um, already in the Bureau. Um, but he, I think for an intro to social engineering, I like his book a little bit better just because he, he really goes into the, the principles of psychology and really breaks, you know, breaks it down. Um, Mr. Mitnick, he approaches it more from, I would say, the artistic side, and <laughs> yeah, that seems fair. Yep. Yeah, and and when you when you listen to him uh, give a presentation, I mean, he's a fantastic presenter. He um he talks about um, growing up like around Santa Monica and uh, uh, going to that magic shop. I don't know if you've ever been there. Oh, I, interesting. I, on, third or fourth street. But if, if you yeah. know the one I, I'm talking about, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And, um, and that that was uh, part of his inspiration for getting into social engineering as a teenager. And so, yeah, anyways, I think both books are very good, but Before, his came yeah, out first. Yeah. Just, just for folks who might not be aware, can you, can you just define that term social engineering for us? And sure. Maybe give us an example of a social engineering attack. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so social engineering um, is basically using uh, psychological mechanisms. Uh, these could be things like social pressure or maybe um, social norms um, and, and leveraging these to um, the attacker's uh, advantage. And so uh, an example might be like a phishing email. A phishing email is, a, is an email that is uh, fraudulent. It usually impersonates another uh, entity that it's not really um, originating from. And um, one of the common techniques that's used in phishing is uh, impersonating some sort of an authority figure. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of uh, people in the audience probably have received um, uh, emails purporting to come from the IRS and saying mm, that they right. owe money. And so this would be the use of authority, which is one of, um, Robert Cialdini's, um, social influence principles. Right. And this can be very effective because, um, we're used to deferring to authority and we're obviously afraid of consequences for not complying with authority. So this would be an example of a specific social engineer, uh, social engineering technique, leveraging a principle of social influence to get someone to take some sort of action that may be harmful to themselves. Totally. Uh, Maybe I can throw out one or two more that are kind of more on the fun end. So I remember, I think Mitnick's, uh, one of his early ones was just getting uh, pizza delivered to his house by by like (laughs) calling up another pizza hut and being like, hey guys, I'm at the other pizza hut and here's a bunch of pizza hut lingo to prove it to you. We are out of pizza. Can you please deliver a pizza on our behalf? (laughs) So it goes all the way from there on up. They did something similar to that with a blockbuster too, I think, to get some videos. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely. And then I think one of my favorite was if uh, I think this worked a little bit better in the CRT uh, monitor days, but the joke was if you ever wanted to get into a tech company's like uh, offices, all you had to do was just carry a heavy computer monitor towards a door, oh, and somebody will right. help you. <laughs> yeah, because right, they feel bad. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but anyway, so so you're talking about kind of uh, getting interested in this and, and joining the bureau. Yeah. Well, and so. Um, especially on the technical side, I knew nothing about cybersecurity. And uh, Mm. so I I got into the Bureau and uh, they basically taught me everything that I knew. And um, that was a real interesting inflection point for me because, um, well, first of all, I was very intimidated coming from psychology background, even though um, what I did in graduate school, it it did involve like AI and, and some of these, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, what were later called machine learning techniques. But, um, you know, I really, I had no idea what a TCP IP stack was or anything like that. And so, um, I went through all this training and, um, then I start actually doing real investigations and, you know, I'm expecting to go up against, you know, Matthew Broderick from, you know, war games, you know, some, Mm -hmm. you know, super genius that was hacking into computers using, you know, zero day exploits. And, and, um, the reality is, is that represents maybe 0.01% of all of the data breaches and the other 99.9% of the data breaches are either just straight up human error. So not even, uh, a malicious actor on the other side, but this is somebody who, you know, misconfigures uh, a server or 
you know, to leave yeah. it exposed to the open web or the other classic um, is sending sensitive information as an email attachment without encrypting it to mm. the wrong um, recipient. And so this is where autocomplete sort of works against us sometimes. <laughs> and uh, so believe it or not, that represents just human error, non-malicious represents anywhere from 40 to 90% of all the data breaches, depending on um, the particular survey that was done. Yeah. And the remainder of it is made up with social engineering attacks like we just talked about. Um, the Verizon uh, data breach investigation report, uh, I think two years ago, reported that uh, something like 94% of all malware that's introduced into systems comes via email. So with email, there's somebody on the other side of that email opening and downloading something that they that they shouldn't. So um yeah, so social engineering is really a highly effective uh, technique, and this is what I found, you know, being in the bureau that was uh, leading to the majority of, of data breaches. And mm-hmm. um, this um, this realization uh, very early on, I, I recognized this having a background in psychology that this is less of a technical problem and more of a human problem embedded within cyberspace, or at least that was the perspective I had. Mm-hmm. And um, something that's that's very that can be very frustrating about working in law enforcement is that law enforcement by its nature is reactive, right? So you're, you're really not pre- preventing anything from happening. You're, you're always responding after the fact. And so something else that uh, became apparent very quickly and was also very frustrating is that uh, a good portion, if not the vast majority of cyber threat actors are located in countries that will not extradite to the United States. So we yeah. may find out perfectly well who the who the actors are and not be able to do anything about it. Um, and I, there was, uh, well, in fact, I think the Sony uh, breach was an excellent example. I believe mm. that there were five North Korean hackers that were indicted right. by the Department of Justice. Yeah. And uh, North Korea's... Uh, extradition policy with the U.S. is just not <laughs> not conducive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I left and I, I went to uh, academia for a few years. I went to uh, the University of Central Florida where I was a research professor of cybersecurity nice. uh, for about four years. And then I just left that recently to um, uh, start up my own firm. And that's that's what I'm doing now. Fantastic. Well, you know, one of the things I'm curious if we can segue into a little bit is I know some of your uh, current research is is around the limitations of, you know, taking a law enforcement approach to uh, cybercrime. And I'm, I'm curious if maybe you can walk us through uh, a little bit of the alternatives. I know you've talked, uh, we've talked a little bit about kind of the annoyance techniques uh, that people do, but maybe you can give us a little overview on that. Sure, sure. So, um John Strand from uh, Black Hills Security has actually got an entire book called Offensive Countermeasures. And that was uh, actually one of the points that really inspired me to start thinking about this. And um, in that book, he he outlines three sort of categories of countermeasures. And these are annoyance, attribution, and attack. And um, these are all, I would say, more um, technically oriented. So um, you might look at different ways to say attribute uh, a DDoS attack to try to understand who 
where that attack is um, originating. So DDoS being a distributed denial of service attack. Um, And what my idea was, was to take these same principles and apply them uh, specifically toward um, social engineering. And Mm. so I... um, I have a grad student that I'm working with, and uh, she liked this idea, so we decided to start uh, moving in this direction. And it's it's still pretty early on, but um, what we're looking at doing, there's a um, uh, a voice chat bot that is out there. It's called the Jolly Roger bot, and uh, mm-hmm. if you have a few minutes and want a little entertainment, I highly recommend that you go to the Jolly Rogers uh, YouTube channel and just listen in on some of these uh, conversations that telemarketers are having uh, with the uh, voice bot. And um, we actually have had a chance to uh, speak with Roger Anderson, the uh, developer who developed this. And essentially the way that the Jolly Roger bot works is that it's an app on your phone. And and if you're getting a, a phone call from uh, a number that you don't recognize, you can just uh, activate the app, send the the call to the app, and then you can listen in to see if it was in fact somebody that you wanted to speak to, or if it was a telemarketer. And if it is a telemarketer, then um, basically this this voice activated chatbot engages with the telemarketer. And what's kind of unique about his approach is that um, he uses pre recorded uh, messages. And so he has voice actors that just come in and they just uh, pre-record um, just inane random statements on all kinds of stuff. Totally. And and then it just feeds these, these random um, little bits back to the telemarketer. And I think and, it's got little great things around like, hey, wait, you know what? I can't hear you. Let me just get my other set of headphones one second. <laughs> it's just yes, all stalling yes. tactics and stuff, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and one of them, it's, it sounds like an elderly person and they say, oh, um, I didn't quite get that. Can you repeat what you just said? Oh, no. <laughs> After, you know, three or four minutes of the person launching into their spiel. So they go through it again. Um, my favorite is is the one where they talk about a bee being on his his leg and he's afraid to move and he's asking the telemarketer what he should do. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> that's wild! And, and uh, you, uh, was it, I seem to recall? Did you say that? It, uh, I think you indicated that it did seem like it was actually having an effect, right? Yeah. Um, so there's one of the videos. Uh, where they actually they over uh, overhear a supervisor come in, and um, yeah, it's great. Uh, you can sort of hear in the background the the telemarketer is saying, "Hey, I don't know what's going on with this guy. He's weird." And the supervisor says, "Okay, let me hear it." And uh, he listens for a second. He recognizes the voice of the bot, and he's like, "Oh yeah, that's a bot." And then he says, "Put the number on this list over here, because then we won't have to pay for it." And uh, the implication being that they were paying somebody for these lists of, of numbers. And so that indicates that this is being um, effective. And so uh, that got me to thinking, well, this might serve then as a model for how we can ad- uh, address um, at least phone-based social engineering attacks in a way that uh, doesn't require law enforcement. And so to give you sort of a kind of a, uh, I'm not sure if it would be a, probably more of a strategic view on this, uh-huh. uh, 
there have been some proposals about uh, charging a fee for sending an email. So uh, if we want to use Bitcoin, maybe we could say, okay, one Satoshi for every email that you send. And a Satoshi is fairly small, so right. uh, an individual is not going to notice that. However, if you're uh, launching these uh, spam attacks with you know millions and millions of emails, that's going to add up. Mm -hmm. And um, this is sort of the same idea in that it's imposing a, a cost, cost on... Yeah that that's sending in emails and so another perspective on this that i've been toying around with is um there are a few organizations that i work with to do research on phishing and the policy is not to respond to anything that appears to be phishing it just you know the emails go into black hole they don't want anyone to respond to them and the idea is is that um you don't want to alert the attackers that this is a potentially live um, email address. Hmm. And, you know, thinking about um, the Jolly Roger bot, I started to think about, well, what if you took the opposite approach? And what if you respond to every message? And it's this inane, you know, back and forth stuff with the people launching the phishing uh, attacks uh, and somehow, you know, have uh, port those messages over to a different account. And, um, you know, again, this isn't something I've, I've tried to implement yet, um, but it's um, something uh, that Juliet, the, the graduate student, and I'll mm -hmm. probably also start exploring because, you know, there again, if um, like the organization in question had about 8,000 8, employees, I think. And so you can imagine if all 8,000 of those emails start responding to phishing emails, that's uh, that's inducing an enormous uh, cost on the part of the fishers there again. Yeah, I appreciate that. Just that idea of you know, how do you raise the costs on the people that are doing this because it is otherwise so asymmetric, right? To try to prevent yourself against these things. That's that's exactly right, and that's I think that's the problem that we're facing right now is that the attackers have all of the initiative, right? Mm -hmm. And that that shouldn't be the case. Yeah, that makes sense. And so uh, do, do you want to describe any more of the, I know you've talked about your uh, PhD student working on um, kind of more advanced counters to that. Is there anything else you want to say on that before I move on? Um, no, I think that's, uh, okay. well, I, I guess one other thing I will say. So um, right now we're very much in the build stage, but once we have um, everything sort of built up and we can start testing, um, the next sort of the next stage of this that we really want to look at is trying to increase attribution. So right. if, you know, can we right now, um, the way that uh, Roger Anderson's uh, Jolly Roger bot is set up, it's just uh, feeding back these random sort of responses. Uh, and we started, uh, Juliet and I started thinking about, well, maybe it would be possible for us to design a bot that would actually start a listening uh, responses that we could use to then attribute uh, the attacker to basically, I, maybe not identify, but at least to de-anonymize to some extent so that we can say that this person is the same person as that person or differentiate Interesting. them. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So like not even... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, there, there's a step in attribution that's not even saying exactly what their name is, but just uh, grouping together who is the same attacker. Yeah, yeah. And and ideally, what I'd really like to do is to see how far we can push that envelope. Because, um, and this even gets to some of uh, 
what Cambridge Analytica was doing with Facebook, but mm-hmm. looking at uh, digital artifacts to, um, you know, re reattribute um, uh, personality uh, characteristics. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, cause there's such an extensive, um, uh, sort of body and knowledge around fingerprinting for like yes. advertising purposes. Right. And that's interesting. I, ha- I hadn't heard about that used, uh, in, in this case on the sort of flip side to identify attackers, but that, has, that makes sense. Well, and there's a lot that can be done with just very little pieces of information, like mm-hmm. pronoun usage, right? Interesting. And yeah, yeah. so, yeah, if if English is not the primary language, then I don't know how that'll work. But again, this is these are things that we would like to explore, um, just as concepts. Yeah. Well, and this is a whole, uh, you know, we try to stay on the, the more solutions oriented sides here on the podcast. But one of the other problems that I've heard a lot uh, that, that scares me a little bit is. Uh, quality of English is usually a, a very good way of differentiating phishing and, and all these other attacks. And with like GPT-3 and some of these better AIs coming online. Yeah. Yes. Well, did you see, um, did you happen to see uh, Black Hat last year? Uh, there mm. was a submission, a GPT-3 spear phishing bot that was created. And it wow. was it was creating spear phishing email messages that yeah. were having higher engagement rates than the human generated oh ones. Oh my God. That's yeah. Wild. And so I know that we're going to talk a little bit about cyber warfare later, but uh-huh. I think that this is one of the really terrifying things about cyber warfare is that um, to use like a battlefield analogy, right? You, you could have like a sniper on a battlefield that picks out one individual target from a long distance away. Right. Well, I think we're very, very quickly moving toward uh, sort of the cyber equivalent to that, where you can have mm-hmm. someone sitting on the other side of the world creating these sort of mass messages that are each tailored to an individual target um, based on personality and other psychographics using wow. yeah. language tailored toward that that type of target. I don't, I don't think we're very far from that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's troubling. Um so coming back to this topic of attribution, this may be there may be just an obvious answer to this, but I'm curious to hear uh, like why that helps in your mind. Like if you're able to, you know, say it is a group in North Korea or it's a group in Russia or someplace that doesn't have a great extradition treaty, like how does it help to uh, like attribute it to the actor that's carrying on the cyber attack? Yeah, that's um, that's a good question. Well. I think in a broadest sense, the way that it helps is that it allows us to gain, um, you know, threat intelligence on, mm-hmm. on the actors that are, that are engaging. Right. And um, well, okay. So let's look at this from the adversaries side yeah. for a second. Um, something that I've, I've looked at quite a bit are gift card scams and okay. the way that uh, gift card scam works there are variations but essentially it'll be an email or a text message that um appears to come from someone's supervisor okay so they will you know send this this text or this email and they'll say hey are you busy can you can you do me a favor and then if the person responds then they start to engage and they have some sort of pretext as to why they need someone to buy gift cards and um you know so on and so forth um i'm trying to remember i I'm certain that there have been other pretexts, but I got to tell you, the vast majority uh, have been uh, an impersonated supervisor. Okay. Right. Well, I think we actually had somebody get attacked with this at my last company. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. these, um, the estimates I've seen are that gift card scams went up by 870% when the work from home shift happened. Yeah. So, 
<laughs> very, yeah, very prominent, very lucrative um, form of uh, cybercrime. Yeah, we might get a chance to dive into this a little bit more, but I think this is a this is a whole important area of um, security. Is how does it change during the pandemic when you're not meeting people in person, right? You're not saying this stuff face to face. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So to to answer your question though, so you can only impersonate someone's supervisor if you know who their supervisor is, right? right. So um, so the threat actors are doing an immense amount of OSINT, open source intelligence gathering mm. to find out, you know, to find org charts or, you know, to, to see um, maybe on LinkedIn who is, you know, connected to who and, and these kinds of things in order to be able to, to carry out that social engineering attack. Now, um, I, I, in the paper that I wrote about this, I, I was very cautious about advocating for any sort of counterattacking. But uh, if let's say that we did want to launch some sort of a counter social engineering attack on the mm-hmm. adversaries, well, it uh, would behoove to us know. to have as much threat intelligence as possible going into that attack, right? So even yeah. even just to rattle cages, I saw, I think this was on YouTube, there was a, a video where someone was able to, um, I can't remember how they did it, but basically they were able to um, identify the IP um, internet protocol address of the attackers. And then from that, they were able to identify the internet cafe that they were operating out of. Mm-hmm. And somehow then they caught a web camera that was viewing that internet cafe and they started beaming pictures of the attackers back to themselves. Wow. And that completely rattled the cages of the attackers. Yeah. And that makes so, a lot of sense. and so this is where attribution, I mean, attribution, even if you can't prosecute, I think sometimes um, the threat actors are so used to being able to sort of operate behind this, um, you know, this cloak of obfuscation of anonymity, that if you can pierce that, it, um, it's, it's psychologically very uh, unnerving for them. That makes a lot of sense. I can also imagine that, you know, oftentimes, you know, especially if it's not for just raw financial gain, I can expect that the uh, the people who are operating these groups probably want the plausible deniability of yeah. it didn't come from us for whatever geopolitical concerns or whatever they might have. Yeah, true. Um, true. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so, so we covered a little bit of uh, annoyance and attribution, and uh, the third quality is is sort of attacking back. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because it seems like there's a broad spectrum of this. I know even companies like Microsoft will kind of do this, right? Is, isn't there ways that they will try to like take over command and control centers and stuff like that or servers? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so, okay. So at a very basic level, um, I shouldn't say basic, but, you know, I mean, like um, at a more uh, micro level, um mm-hmm. There was the uh, Honeyfish project uh, a few years ago. I think this is 2016. I believe the researcher's name was Robbie Gallagher. Um, And what this this project basically did was um, just to create an email account that would uh, respond back to any sort of, um, excuse me, uh, phishing or uh, spam types of emails with uh with an email and the email that it responded with had in it embedded within itself a uh, tracking pixel i'm pretty sure that how it used yeah it was a tracking pixel so that on the other side when um you know the attacker opened up that email uh then that would you know make a call back to the server and it would um you know basically reveal the um 
uh, a few different attributes, like, you know, what type of system they were on, what their IP address was, so on and so forth. And um, so this... This is kind of where it, it it's sort of in that gray area between a tr- attribution and attack, but right. um, it would be, I would consider it to be an attack because you're actually um, kind of sort of launching code or executing sure. code on another machine. And so that's actually projecting. Um, I, I don't know the details of this very deeply, but... Um, you had mentioned Microsoft. I believe that Microsoft filed an injunction. This was uh, what maybe six months ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Legal injunction to take several. Um, I think they were servers offline um, that were involved in uh, uh, DDoS, uh, deni- distributed mm-hmm. denial of service attacks. And um, well, I'll give you. An, uh, let, let me give you another example. Uh-huh. Uh, Apple also filed uh, a legal injunction. Um, can't remember the Israeli company's name, but it was, um, they do uh, basically jailbreaking. I'm sorry? Is it Pegasus? Or the... yeah, 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 that okay. does yeah. the uh, jailbreaking of the iPhones. Right. Yes. And I think the interesting thing about those two examples are that um, there are people who have uh, proposed uh, additional layers to um, the OSI security model. And the OSI uh, is the Open uh, Open Systems Interconnection Model. And uh, boy, it's been a while since I've looked at it, but I believe that uh, layer one of the model is the physical hardware. And then you can go all the way up through the stack mm-hmm. until you get to layer seven, which is the application layer. And that's the the layer that faces the um, the person on the other side that's using using that um, information technology. That's the name and, of your company, right? As layer it, seven, or, yeah. and so <laughs> yeah, the, the name of our company is Beyond yeah. Layer Seven. And so there was a, a researcher by the name of uh, Ian uh, Farquhar who wrote a piece on that we should extend that model to uh, layer eight, which would be the human, mm. layer nine, which would be organization, and layer 10, which is legal. Interesting. And so I think the thing that was interesting about what Microsoft and Apple did is they're basically counterattacking at layer 10 against an attack that was happening, you know, lower down in the OSI stack, or at least that's a way to think about it, right? That's interesting. Yeah. Now, do they get just kind of like deputize like what does that injunction mean does that just give them like legal immunity from launching a counterattack, or or how does that work well um you know again i'm not i'm not real familiar with the cases i haven't taken time to to look but i I believe in microsoft's case um i can't remember where the servers were physically located but i believe that they filed an injunction against the hosting um whoever the host was for those servers and then i see yeah and then pressures to take down exactly and then in the case of pegasus if my memory is correct um i think that they were suing over terms of use maybe that it violated the the tos yeah it was the icloud tos (laughs) well that's kind of scary right because it's like okay i'm glad they maybe won this one case but like if (laughs) you know everybody has these tos's signed and so if they can (laughs) It's just absurd, you know? But yeah. Well, and it, it, it's really far-reaching because this gets into, like, right right to repair and some yep. of these issues as well. Totally. Um, you know, the other thing that's interesting, too, on just thinking about these three categories, you know, the annoyance, attribution, and attack, is that 
you know, while, while in some ways the kind of vigilante in you is like, well, you just got to attack back. The asymmetries rear their head there too, right? Because usually these people are attacking, you know, valuable resources or valuable data or whatever, but that probably doesn't necessarily exist. They can just go buy new machines if you, <laughs> you know, brick them on the other end. It's not like they necessarily have the resources to be counterattacked. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense or not. No, no, it, it completely does. And so um, this is where the work that I'm doing, we, we very clearly differentiate that we're not trying to compromise machines. We're trying to go after the, the people behind the machines. Mm. Um, now, where this gets very, very um, tricky uh, from a legal perspective is that um, there are um, you know, federal laws against uh, breaching um, information technology, right? Sure. And it really doesn't matter uh, if that information technology is in North Korea, Syria, wherever, if you're in the United States and you're, you're actively trying to obtain unauthorized access to a device, that's, you know, a violation of federal law. Mm-hmm. And so this, I, I know that there's been some legislation that's been proposed to try to loosen some of those restrictions, but uh, one of the, you know, really very valid uh, counter arguments to this is that oftentimes these malicious parties will compromise innocent third parties and then use those resources to launch an attack, right? That's right. And again, because we're going after the person behind the keyboard and we're not trying to go after any kind of information uh, infrastructure, I don't think we have those considerations. But I will say one of the points where ethically I start to um, feel a little uncomfortable is that um, take, for example, the uh, Jolly Roger bot again, the people who are working in these call centers in you know, New Delhi or, or where have you, um, I mean, these are like borderline sweatshops, right? I mean, these sure. people are not making uh, millions and millions of dollars. They're you know, being paid um, whatever the shop can basically get away with paying them. And so um, you have people who are in very disadvantaged positions and oftentimes they're not themselves even allowed to hang up the phone. Like they don't have that ability. And so, you know, in that case, when they get uh, hooked into something like the Jolly Roger bot, they have to have a supervisor come in and, and actually disconnect that call for them because they lack that ability. And, um, you know, um, I, I, I feel, um, a great amount of sympathy for people in that situation. However, um, I guess the way that I, I sort of justify that is that the system as a whole is exploiting those people as well as (laughs) wasting my time when they call me. So, um, and so, yeah, but that's, uh, and it's no different really with uh, cybercrime. I mean, when we look at uh, like ransomware uh, gangs and this sort of thing, I mean, these are basically um, very organized operations where people will come, they'll clock in and for, you know, eight or 10 hours or whatever, they'll just, that's all they do is they're trying to launch uh, ransomware attacks. Right. Yep. And um, so, yeah, I mean, this, uh, these organized crime um you know, gangs, whatever you want to call them, um, they're exploitative on both on both sides. And so that's kind of where I justify some of this. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
you know, kind of moving over to the side of, you know, so th- there's kind of the side of uh, taking down or dampening these groups or, or preventing them from doing what they're trying to do, uh, preventing them from doing what they're trying to do. And then there's kind of the protecting yourself and protecting, you know, the organizations that you're part of. Um, I'm curious if you can just maybe tell us a little bit at like a high level about kind of how you think, you know, if somebody's asking you like, Hey, I've got a organization, you know, it's a small startup, there's 20 people. Um, and you know what, actually I'll give you like the, one of the last companies I worked for was a biotech company. Right. And we had, we were doing COVID research. And so it was a very, uh, kind of real, uh, uh, threat that we had, which was that China was trying to steal COVID research from biotech companies, you know? Right. Uh, and protecting yourself against a state actor is not easy. And, and the, the not easy is both like it requires knowledge, but also it becomes very onerous. Um, right. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, how do you, you know, if that is kind of the, the, the you know, threat landscape that you find yourself in as an organization, like, how do you start prioritizing, you know, your security interventions? Well, um, the first thing I'll say is that good that you were, uh, aware of these threats because mm-hmm. the biggest challenge I face in, um, a, a, so let me back up for a second. I do have, uh, another business where we very specifically f- focus on small businesses. Mm-hmm. We, we don't deal with anyone with, um, you know, over a hundred employees, but we're mostly focused on 30 or less. And, uh, one of our biggest challenges is convincing, um, these, these organizations that they are actually, uh, targeted. And, um, yeah, it's, um, I think part of the problem in that regard is that when a small company gets hit with ransomware and that's ransomware and, uh, business email compromise, business email compromise, and, uh, the associated, uh, wire fraud is basically an attempt to impersonate somebody within the organization to, um, socially engineer, somebody else within the organization to transfer payment um, outside the organization to uh, mm-hmm. an account that's owned by the criminals. So, um, but I'll just, you know, blanket refer to that as BEC, business email compromise. Got it. Um, BEC and ransomware are like neck and neck in terms of um, money extracted from small businesses. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'm trying to remember where this statistic comes from. I can get it to you and give it to you in the show notes, but basically yep. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of around 47% of all ransomware attacks uh, occur on businesses with 20 employees or less. Oh, wow. Excuse me, uh, 100, 100 employees 100 or less. Employees less. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And um, this doesn't get the same sort of press coverage as, say, when the city of Baltimore is hit with ransomware, right? Mm-hmm. Um probably just because it doesn't have that impact and because it's not, it doesn't have that salience. I think that's it's also part embarrassing of, too, right? Yeah. People keep it under wraps. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, that is the, the biggest challenge that we have when we're engaging with small businesses, just convincing them that they are a threat. So in your case, when you were aware that China is interested in your IP, that's, mm-hmm that's leaps and, and bounds ahead of uh, most of the uh, clients we, we engage with. Um, so to your point about a nation state, I mean, mm-hmm. I hate to be pessimistic about it, but <laughs> if a nation state is going after you, they're going to get you, right? I mean, there's yeah. just, and so there's sort of two approaches that you can take. Um, 
the first is, you know, outrunning your friend, right? So if you're, if you're in a woods and you're being chased by a bear, you don't really <laughs> need to outrun the bear. You just need to outrun your friend, right? So yeah. uh, you can take that approach to uh, cybersecurity by just hardening um, your own systems. And uh, for example, MFA w- will go a long, long way in preventing the vast majority of these uh, MFA being multi-factor authentication using uh, an authenticator app uh, is the best solution. Uh, second best would be using SMS, but um, as sure. you're aware, it's it's possible to spoof uh, SMS messages. And um, so that that's probably the number one thing. The number two thing is you know simple cyber hygiene, just using a password manager or something like that. Right. Uh, and then finally, uh, making backups of um, data that's of value. Because again, um, if the objective is to you know steal that information, obviously you can encrypt, and that will help uh, tremendously with that. But um, you know, ransomware, generally speaking, is one of the biggest, you know, one of the top threats. And by having backups, you you stand a chance to maybe recover. Uh, the majority of your data. And so those are the things, you know, just broadly speaking that I sort of uh, advise to small businesses. Um, But one other thing I want to follow up with is, um, so in your case, that was a a very unique instance where you have a country that's, that's interested in that IP and you knew that they were interested in that intellectual property. Um, Something that we've seen just in the last two weeks is, um, I believe that this came from um, CISA at uh, DHS, um, was um, that that they're expecting attacks uh, very likely from, uh, I'll say originating from Russia's sphere of influence, we'll just okay. yep. put it that way, yep. on small defense contractors. Now, um, interesting. There's something called CMMC, which is the uh, cyber maturity model. Um, what's the last? <laughs> oh, this is horrible when I can't remember these I uh, know. acronyms. Yeah. Well, and we, it, uh, I'm going to have to shame him a little bit. We have uh, uh, producer Nick is on an airplane right now, so we don't have him to look this stuff up for us. Okay. <laughs> uh, cyber maturity model something, I know. Um, so what, what CMMC specifically is, though, is a few years ago, the... Uh, uh, office of the Sec- Secretary of Defense said, "Look, we're you know we're experiencing too many breaches. Anybody who's related who is um, contributing to a defense contract needs to uh, be certified. And that's what the other C is: <laughs> Cyber Security uh, Maturity Model Certification. Um, they need to be certified at." A certain level, and the level is determined by the sensitivity of um, the project that you're working on. And um, but what's unique about CMMC, as opposed to other regulations, is that this regulation applies sort of full stack. So hmm. even subcontractors need need to have some sort of CMMC okay. uh, certification. Well, what this uh, alert related to. Um, Russian sphere of influence uh, cyber attacks was that um, DHS was warning that that they expected um, attackers to be looking at small businesses that are playing a minor role in um, defense contractors as a way to get upstream I see. in uh, in products. So you can imagine that um, uh, like a rate, uh, like a, sorry, General Dynamics. Uh, 
produces a fighter jet, let's say. Well, their their security is probably you know fairly locked down, but they rely on a a litany of subcontractors, right? Um, even uh, maybe their law firm that has schematics. And if a, if a threat actor can come in and can poison that supply chain somewhere upstream, now you can get something in, or at least this is the objective that you can possibly get something into that, um, you know, into that product by injecting it into the supply chain. That makes sense. Um, yeah, that's tough. Well, because you have both the, um, you know, as we were kind of talking about, you have kind of more of the digital side, and then you also have, um, you know, more of the, the human side. I know, you know, one of the things that um, was one of the hardest challenges that I was looking at on this stuff, uh, because it also comes with, you know, some really important kind of social considerations is China compromising employees, right? So like right. grad students and stuff like that, if they really want to steal data from your organization, they can put pressure on them back home and have their, you know, because like, there's documented cases of this happening, right? Where people's parents call them in a panic saying, please, you know, do this thing. The Chinese government needs us to do this or stop saying what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, are, are there any strategies you've seen for that, for kind of um, preventing like exfiltration of information by compromised employees? Um, it's very, very tough. I mean, this yeah. is, I, I think this is probably one of the most difficult challenges because, um, unfortunately, uh, the people themselves can be very, um, benign, right? They, they may right. not have any sort of malicious intentions, but, um, when your family is being threatened, that's obviously a tremendous amount of pressure. Um, and on the company side, um, you don't want to exclude certain people just because right. they happen to originate from a certain part of the world. And, um, and so it, it really does make it very difficult and especially for a small business because they're not really going to have um, typically the kind of monitoring that they're right. going to need. And so I'll give you a, a quick example from a larger corporation. Um, in fact, one that I'm, I'm working with right now that is implementing um uh, DLP, which is uh, data loss prevention in uh, sensitive uh, documents or files. And what this is, is it's essentially a, um, I guess you, you could call like it a, a piece of software. I'm sorry? Oh, okay. I was going to ask if it was a watermark, but maybe it's not. Yeah. A little bit, little bit more involved than a watermark because uh, this, so watermark will allow you to track that file or that document, mm -hmm. right? And, and you can attribute it maybe to a certain person. So if it resurfaces again, then you can attribute it to that certain person. This takes that a step further in that it will tell you if someone is attempting certain actions. So let's say somebody uh, tries to transfer that asset to a USB drive or something, it. yep. then it'll it'll alert the security department. And so that's one of the more effective counters um, for like what we would call an insider threat, which is a, an employee that has um, you know some sort of malicious intention. Now, um, for a small business, uh, DLP is extremely expensive and a lot of the vendors that offer it won't even, um, you know, talk to a client that's less than say 20,000 employees. And so for these smaller businesses, it, it's a very difficult problem, but I, I would say that this is where, um, 
least uh, there's a principle called least privilege, right? So that you only get access to uh, things that you have a need to know right. or a need to access. And if you can control the access to these other assets, then you can at least try to limit some of that damage that could potentially happen. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, right? Because you, you look at this and it's such a tricky scenario. It, you know, some of these things you're like, am I crazy for even thinking about this? But I know the thing that I was thinking about in that context, I forget what this term is, but it was like a, um, I think it was, you know, it's an old like spy movie <laughs> technique where it's like, you know, every, every time you come to the office, you put out a bouquet of roses or whatever. And then like the one week where you've been compromised, you stop putting out the bouquet of roses. Like it's like, it's like you, you stop, you know, setting out your all clear signal. Right. Um, right. And, and, and maybe this stuff is just crazy. Cause you know, you don't, you never like, it would take a tremendous amount of courage for somebody to, to kind of even do that, to speak up if they were getting compromised, but, but it makes you wonder. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, industrial espionage is very, very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. There's uh, there have been a few uh, works done on it. And uh, believe it or not, Hershey, Hershey's uh, chocolate, I think, had huh. at one point uh, like this tremendous counterintelligence apparatus to keep a company or a espionage, um, uh, industrial espionage uh, spies from infiltrating and uh stealing their ip wow um this is just like a random question that's related to this just because i see it happen so often how do you feel about people using zoom well i mean it's 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 our it's what we exist in now right i mean this this is uh i think well because the work from home shift happens so quickly and so unexpectedly that not just Zoom, but a lot of video platforms, I think, were really open um, to a lot of vulnerabilities, to a lot of uh, security holes. And so I know that Zoom had several, and mm-hmm. um, a lot of them have been patched. I, you know, I'm not confident that all of them have been. And um, maybe you can remind me, I, I can't remember who it is that owns Zoom, but I seem to remember that there was some some foreign ownership of that as yeah, well. Yeah, it comes, it, it, it's a, uh, it's, you know, the parent company is Chinese. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, at least I'm under that impression. Um, but yeah, I just, that, that, that it's funny because I, I tell folks that it's like, you know, I, I don't really care if they can see your video so much or like it, it's the call that doesn't matter to me as much as just having the client installed at all. Um, yeah. And, and there's that kind of issue. I don't, uh, I'm curious if maybe you can, um, verify this or not but one of the things that i had heard that i thought was really interesting was that like china doesn't pressure companies to put backdoors in because it's too obvious what they do is they pressure companies to uh disclose uh bugs to them first so that they can basically Mm. bank the zero days um and that those are much harder to um you know see than an intentional backdoor um, well, I, I can't yeah, confirm yeah. that, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. it sounds very consistent. Um, right. And I, I, you know, to the, to your point about the video, uh, I am concerned about the video. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mm-hmm. reason I'm concerned about the video is that um, I think deep fake social engineering attacks um, are a real thing. Uh, Interesting. We so the FBI put out a private industry notification last March, so I guess about a year ago now saying basically expect these within the next one to two years. And, um, what we have seen is we haven't seen so many 
video attacks, but there have been, I think now three fairly well-documented um, uh, audio based attacks. So this is somebody calling on the phone and, and using deep fake uh, audio technology to impersonate the voice of um, you know, an executive and then get them to take some sort of action. And, um, you know, usually this is to get them to uh, wire transfer money. Um, But, uh, you know, you really think about it, you're only limited by your creativity, right? So um, one case I'm thinking about, this didn't happen through the phone, this happened through email, but there was a disgruntled employee that was fired from an organization and they uh, impersonated the email of an executive and basically fired like an entire department within this wow. company. Yeah. And so uh, <laughs> thankfully this happened uh, pre uh, work from home because after two or three days, uh, an employee noticed that this entire department, no one was showing up. And so they reached out and uh, somebody from that department said, well, yeah, you fired us all. Wow. And um, then they, you know, they, put all the pieces together. But the next sort of iteration of that is, um, is with Zoom chat, right? Or video mm-hmm. chat using deep fake tech video and audio technology to impersonate somebody. And so we've already seen, you know, humorous variations on this where like the lawyer will get stuck on kitten mode or something like that right? when they're in the court proceedings. And, and it's great and good times are had by all, but it, how far is it to go from that to um, impersonating that lawyer, you know, if you can make sure. a deep fake of that lawyer and then you're in on that, um, you know, on that court proceeding, then all of a sudden, uh, hmm. you know, you can throw wow. that case, you could plead guilty. I mean, there's a whole host, there's <sighs> no limitation as to what you could do. And granted, they they probably would figure it out eventually, but how you know how much time transpires right in that time and some and things our systems aren't really built to like undo exactly right? yeah yep that's wow. my that's my concern um that oh. we're dealing with 21st century uh technology using 17th century procedures yeah and you know just as a, a hint for some people who might be wondering how this happens you know you, you might think that you have to uh, you know pre-generate all this stuff and it takes a long time and sometimes it does but what people have done is they've built like sound boards <laughs> you, you just have like a bunch of pre-canned phrases right that you can just press a button on um, and so it's not the most natural conversation in the world but you can you can you know pivot based on what somebody else is saying um, well, do you, do you, you know, we always try to ask here, um, you know, are there any, um, you know, paths to address this that you see? Um, well, um, you talked about kind of 17th century laws. I don't know if it's a legal thing or if it's a, uh, you know, technology thing here. but Right. Yeah. So for court court proceedings specifically, I don't I don't know what the, sure. the fix on that is, is because, I mean, um, almost by design, the legal system is very inflexible on certain mm-hmm. procedures. But uh, everywhere else, uh, what I've been advocating for is um, really old-fashioned uh, policy or tradecraft, whatever you want to call it, uh, to counter these things. And uh, I'll give you a very uh, specific example. Please. Um, the, the thing that really terrifies me the most about uh, deep fake technology and using it in a criminal way 
uh, would be like the example of uh, virtual kidnappings. Mm. And so mm. if you're not familiar with these, um, they kind of sometimes they go by the the moniker of uh, grandmother scams. And uh, the way that this works is that the criminals will uh, call, um, you know, a parent or a grandparent and they will claim uh. to have kidnapped the child or grandchild. And sometimes these are very good. Um, I know you're familiar with uh, sim, sim swapping. So you can right, actually right. impersonate the phone of yeah. that person, right? While preventing them from answering, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And you say, look, I've got their phone, I've got them, and you, you know, I need you to send me X amount of dollars. And if you don't do it within this period, then I'm going to kill them or whatever. Yeah. And now, if you can imagine taking that attack, which is already incredibly effective because it is so emotional when somebody gets, you know, one of these calls. Right. Um, you pair that with deep fake video of oh, that person and yeah. saying, this is the video I'm taking of this person. And um, the thing that deep fake technology adds to that is you can, you can even, you know, have that person holding a newspaper from that day or, you know, something you could have them take it, you know, if the, if the person challenges it and says, okay, fine, have them raise their right hand. Well, they could do that because they can, they can actually manipulate that video in real time. Now, um, one of the counters to this is that uh, for a long time, um, when government personnel go abroad, they uh, record proof of life uh, statements, right? So they may have a passphrase or, or uh, a password or something that they will remember that they can use to establish their identity um, if something happens and they're abducted or somebody claims to have abducted them, that way the um, negotiators on the other side can establish that that person is in fact uh, being held and that they are still alive. And so doing something as simple as that could help to prevent, you know, these scams like, okay, you have my daughter, have her, you know, tell me what um, color her hippopotamus was when she was three or something, yeah, you know, whatever it is. Sense. And, um, you know, again, I mean, it's, it's easy to say that when we're sitting here cold and rational, but, um, it's one thing, but in order to implement that, you have to have it arranged ahead of time, right? Most, most cases. So that makes sense. And honestly, you know, it's funny you talk about this kind of old, old school tradecraft stuff is that's one of my recommendations for you. Know, uh, we were talking a little bit before the call about kind of remote onboarding new employees, you know, or just like conducting sensitive business at a distance now. Right. Um, especially in light of this. And, you know, one of the recommendations that I've been making is like make like a fucking one time pad, like like just make a bunch of just rant, like pick pick a page out of, a, you know, a random book and like send that page to all the employees and have them read out a line or whatever, you know? Yeah. And like it's just some of this old school stuff. And you tell me if I'm off, if I'm off you know, no. filter on this, but yeah, but it's funny, right? It's just these low tech solutions. Yeah. And I think it's interesting how, how it's circling back. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, because on the other side of that, um, so I, I, myself, I'm a horrible actor. Like you, you don't want me to be in your play or in your video or whatever. Cause I, <laughs> sure. I just, I, I know where my talents are and I know where they're not and they're not, definitely not there. Um, but I've gotten very good at writing phishing emails in the, um, research yeah. that I've been doing. Now, the thing that's interesting is about, I think, um, synthetic media, social engineering or deep fake social engineering is that if you have these real time actors, um, 
who are using a, a video puppet, the video puppet being the person that they're portraying, um, then the person behind that puppet uh, needs to be able to uh, mimic the man, uh, mannerisms of that person to be believable. And they also have to stay in character with what pretext they're trying to convey, right? Yep. And so um, there's one of the really uh, good early deep fake videos that's out there is with um, Jordan Peele, I think, uh, doing the impersonation of uh, Barack Obama. Interesting. And when you see the video right. yes, of, I do. I've seen this, yep. Yeah, when you see the video of uh, Peele behind the scenes, he's mimicking um, – you know, the, um, you know, the body language, exactly. And the prosody of speech, Barack Obama has a very distinct prosody to his speech and, and, um, Jordan Peele is imitating that. Yeah. And so it's kind of funny because this then brings it back, like I said, kind of full circle to, uh, the, um, the 1920s or, or 1910s con artist, right. That would go and try to sell someone the Brooklyn bridge or something like that. Those people were good actors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, And for anybody who doesn't know, you know, con artist stands for confidence artist, right? Uh, Right. yeah. Yeah. That's important. Um, yeah, it's funny. I was trying to think back because I wanted to not give people the wrong uh, wrong advice on this, but I think what was the strategy? It was basically like, I don't know. It's like make a list of 20 words and and just say like, hey, I'm reading off the third word and Brian. you read off the fifth word or whatever, you know, and, and you got to recycle this every once in a while. But, just, but these are yeah. simple old school types of solutions. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about it now, but something else we, we've spoken about before is what about bringing on new people that you've never met yes yeah yeah let's talk about it yeah um i wish i had a good answer for this one i don't but uh i um i i do think it's an interesting problem that we're gonna have to address right because as uh i think we've already made that shift into online work it's i know that there are companies that are (laughs) desperately trying to get that to um to go back to the uh, before times, but uh, from everything I've seen, those those attempts are not being very successful. So it's it's highly likely, I think, that we're moving into an economy where a substantial portion of the workforce is working entirely online. And um, I'm experiencing that right now with myself. I, I'm working with a team of people who have never met in real person, you know, in real life. Yep. And um, to a certain extent, I'm going on faith that these people all exist and are who they say that they are. They're um, not dogs. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, speaking, uh, speaking about uh, internet dogs, uh, yeah. Cade. Right. right? Yes. You had yeah, on yeah. a previous episode. And um, I remember from that Just episode. Just for people's context. Yeah. So he shows, he, he always shows up as his avatar in video chat as a animated uh, uh, Shiba dog. Yeah. Shiba. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he, he mentions this. Um, what, was, what is it that he called it? Was it social feedback uh, oh, identification or something? I forget the exact term, but I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's, it's like the subtle yeah. signals that somebody is consistent is that what it is or yeah yeah yeah. and um and so i'm wondering if we can start to build and maybe rely more on those types of of tools and techniques to authenticate people and um i know i mentioned this before but uh 
Balaji uh, Sirinvasan is uh, advocating for like pseudonymous economies, right? Mm-hmm. And that uh, there would be like these uh, pseudonyms that people would be able to operate uh, using and that these pseudonyms would build up reputation, which adds an incentive not to uh, sort of burn that pseudonym because that requires you then to go back and rebuild that pseudonym. And the other side of that is that I, that I find uh, appealing is that um, using pseudonyms, um, I mean, right now, I think my personally identifiable information, my you know name, birth date, social security number, uh, other identifiers, I th- at last count, that's been breached five different times wow. through, you know, different yeah. uh, breaches. And I'm sure I, I have yet to meet anyone who hasn't ha- had at least three, yeah. right? Three large breaches that have um, affected them. And so I can, I was listening to um, Senator uh, Ron Wyden speak at DEF CON a few years ago. And it was such an obvious point. <laughs> and when he said this, I thought, why is it that more politicians can't understand this? Is that his point was that this data gets gets um, breached and it, it gets uh, leaked out onto the dark web or what have yeah. you. Why in the world are the companies keeping this data for years and years and years anyway? If they didn't have that data to begin with, then it wouldn't be such a cost if it's lost. And so to come back to this this idea of a pseudonymous economy, um, the reason, well, maybe not the only reason, but one of the primary reasons for identifying an individual is um, to establish trust, right? right? You want to know that that person's going to um, actually follow through with the transaction on their side. And one way to enforce that is through reputation. Yeah. But again, coming back to There has to pseudonym, be something they could lose. You have to be able exactly. to punch them in some way. Yeah. Exactly. So I, again, I don't know what the solutions are to these, these problems, but I think that this is probably one of the areas that's going to be very exciting in terms of uh, developing a solution space for. Makes sense. So one thing that I think that we can say uh, potentially is, you know, if you're doing this kind of remote onboarding or, or anything similar, you know, the highest bandwidth channel, uh, the better, right? Like deep faking audio is, is uh, more expensive than sending emails and deep faking video is more expensive than audio. Right. Uh, and requires like tons of sophistication. So if you can push it to phone calls or video or whatever, it seems valuable. Well, and costs not in terms of just uh, technology, but that you actually need a, a person, at least for now, on the other side interacting. Yeah, totally. Um, so one of the places that I would love to, for us to just touch on a little bit, um, is this whole situation over in, uh, Ukraine. Um, it's, you know, the- is there something going on over there? <laughs> yeah. Something small. Yeah. I think they got, yeah. Yeah. The regional conflict. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's, it's wild, right? Because I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting is, um, it feels different. It feels different than, than recent conflicts and, you know, maybe there's some cynical reasons why, you know, like it, you know, maybe you know, people look more similar, you know, whatever else it might be. But I think that there is some some real uh, differences in kind of like the amount of information that's coming out, the like coordination that seems to be happening on things like Reddit. Uh, and, and I'm curious just to kind of like, you know, if you have any serviceable thoughts about, you know, what's going on over there or sort of like why it might feel like a different conflict, you know, from kind of mm. an information perspective. Right. Well, um, I guess one thing that, um, that I will say is, um, I don't, 
you know, I haven't really been keeping abreast of, of all of the latest developments, sure. but, you know, I've been kind of just following on the layer, almost uh, on the superficial layer, almost uh, deliberately because um, the noise to signal ratio right now is probably mm, interesting. Uh, really, really high. Yeah. Um, however, um, let me think here how that's, you know, it is, it is different um, in a more conventional way in that this was a, uh, a regular invasion, right? I, I can't remember in Crimea if they went in exactly the same way, but this was like a, a regular, this is like a desert uh, storm. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas, uh, I was trying to think of the last time that there was a real, you know, war in the European area, it would have been probably the, the Balkans, I think mm. with, um, you know, Kosovo and, uh, former Yugoslavia. But that was much, uh, much more of a kind of civil conflict. And they were trying to, it seems like they were trying to establish their, their boundaries more, whereas this was certainly one country overpowering another. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, are you familiar with the concept of fifth generational warfare? No, I'd be curious. Yeah. Okay. So you have uh, first generation is like, um, you know, like the Greek style uh, phalanx, uh, you know, going up against another sure. uh, formation of, of troops. And, uh, you know, essentially the um, the weapons were like the sword and the spear and, and this kind of thing. And then uh, later you get into uh, indirect fire types of weapons, which could be, you know, archery. It could be, you know, muskets, cannons, this kind of thing. This is second generation. Uh, third generation would be uh, where you start bringing in uh, aircraft and um, armor, and uh, where you really see this come in is uh, like the Blitzkrieg of the uh, World War II era. And then fourth generation would be more like the Cold War, where you're using um, you know geopolitical strategy and economic warfare to uh, leverage, um, your, your adversary. And then, and then finally fifth generational warfare, it uses, um, you know, the MDM. So miss dis and malinformation, uh, injection, you have cyber, you have AI, you have, um, drone and autonomous, uh, technology. And so, um, but, but, and so this is the fifth generation of warfare. Sense. Yeah. But but the thing to keep in mind is that each generation sort of builds on the on the previous generation. And so you can sort of think of this as sort of a full stack model. Hmm. And so even now, today, we're still using spears. It's just that we call them bayonets and we put them on the right. end of rifles. Yeah. Right. Yep. So um so everything still comes into play. And so what we're seeing in Ukraine right now, I, I don't know of any bayonet attacks, but um it wouldn't surprise yeah. me. But you're seeing this full stack warfare. And I think huh. what you're describing, I think, is that this is really one of the first times that we've really seen this full stack. Um, there was a case where, um, oh, I forget the year. I, I want to say this was maybe 2015 or 16, but I might be wrong on the year. But um, there was someone who was constructing something that seemed like a nuclear weapons facility in, I believe, Syria. And the Israelis went in and did an airstrike and, and destroyed the site. The thing that was really interesting about this, though, was that uh, somewhere, somehow, all of the uh, air uh, warning 
sites were taken offline oh, wow. with a cyber attack, like minutes before the Israeli jets went in and, and did Oof. the airstrike. Yeah. And so this was a very, um, you know, evident example of how cyber warfare probably works, right? Is that it's, uh, I think that the term for it is actually multi-domain operations. And uh-huh. so you're, you're launching an attack in cyberspace to facilitate attack in physical space. But um, what's different here in Ukraine is that you actually have a land invasion with these other components versus the example with mm-hmm. uh, the Israelis in Syria, where it was just an airstrike. And um, so that's an interesting component to this. However, um, to bring it back to fifth generation, the, something I think that's very interesting that I've been seeing coming out of there, the little bit that I've, I've been paying attention is, um, this, this is really meme, meme warfare, mm-hmm. right? And, um, what, what is the, uh, the ghost, the, the ghost ace? Have you heard oh, of this? Oh, is this the, the fighter jet? The, yes. Yeah. The ghost of Ukraine. Yeah. Or something like that. The yeah. ghost of Ukraine. Yeah. And, um, there's, there's some argument right now as to whether or not this is actually a factual story. I'm, yeah. And, okay. Yeah. It's interesting because there's so much fun. My, my understanding of it was it was completely fake, but yeah, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Because it might be real. Who knows? There's a lot of noise out there, but I, I was under the impression that it was uh, a series of uh, shots from a video game. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And that, that very well could be because I, I got this a couple of days ago when it was first being questioned. And, um, but my response to it was, it kind of doesn't matter. I mean, if it can be established as fake, then yes, at that point, it no longer matters. But um, in the moment, it kind of didn't matter because the meme was so good, right? Yeah, right. Well, so, um, so just for others that don't know this, this it was basically kind of like a fighter ace, right? He was like taking down all the Russian planes. Is that is that the one that you're referring to? Yeah, like five, uh, no, six, I think mm-hmm. is what they were saying. And um, not only... Uh, are the Russian uh, pilots ostensibly probably better trained, but the equipment that they're flying is absolutely superior to what Ukraine has. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that you have sort of this underdog story and, you know, having this, this asymmetric, uh, you know, outcome with these other pilots, it it made for a great story. And, um, and I think that's really interesting. Um, who was it? P P W singer, I think has a book called like war and he talks about how, um, I think it was ISIL in, in Syria Mm -hmm. and, uh, they were going back and forth with the oper- uh, oppositional forces on uh, Twitter and other platforms, uh, you know, posting, you know, memes and, and pictures and, and, you know, sending messages back and forth and taunting each other and trying to intimidate each other through these mediums. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, this is really interesting because this is something, it, it may not be completely new because, this this obviously happened in the 14th and 15th century, but you were always within voice shouting distance of each other sure. when you were doing it, right? Yeah. So well, and it's fascinating, you know, the um, just the degree of because I think this is something else that kind of makes this this feel different, which is the uh, and again, I don't want to get too far out of my head of myself because you know it's possible in past conflicts this stuff was kind of happening like in Arabic in other parts of the web that I have no interaction with, right? But like. Right. It has been fascinating just to see like the subreddits 
where like, you know, somebody will be posting, Hey, I'm like in Ukraine. Like, I don't really quite know what to do. I'm trying to help. And then some guy will come on. It's just like, Hey, I, I served over in Afghanistan for eight years. Here's exactly what the insurgents did to us. You need to go start like building piles of dirt with an extension cord into it and nothing else, you know, on the side of the road. And, and it was just wild to see just kind of like the outpouring of, you know, not only like, you know, you've seen with like Bellingcat, right, the open source intelligence, like people trying to like build the intelligence case, but actually trying to just like distributedly like help, like, I don't know, open source ops wow. or whatever, you know, on Reddit. Uh, and it's just like Russian to such a, Russia is such a hated like kind of actor at this point that it seems like it's rallying the internet. Uh, I guess time will tell how how big of a difference it makes, but but it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, this is interesting, and I I don't want to overblow this conf, uh, conflict because we really don't know where where it's going to go or what the impact is going to mm -hmm. be just yet. But I I think that this could be one of the pivotal points in history, mm -hmm. and um, I'll explain a little bit of why this might be the case. Number one. Uh, I mean, the stakes are very high for Ukraine. That's obvious, right? Um, but I think the stakes are actually very high for Vladimir Putin right. in this one. Yeah. Because if, um, you know, he rolls over Ukraine and takes it, that's not going to surprise anybody. I mean, I think that's a pretty expected outcome. What is in question is what happens next, right? Mm -hmm. Because when the U.S. went into Iraq, we, I can't remember how many days it took to to secure the country, but it was very short. Right. Um, but then now holding, holding on to that ground is a completely different story. Yeah. And I, I'm starting to get the impression that, that Putin may run into the same problem here in that, uh, yeah, he can go in and he can, I mean, I, I haven't been tracking, but I know as of a couple of days ago, I saw rotary aircraft flying, um, in the airspace, which indicates that Russia had air superiority because mm. you don't typically send rotary aircraft in an area where you're afraid. I heard they were fucking that up, though. They were landing para like parachute troops in places where they hadn't secured it yet. So, yeah, I don't, but yeah. Oh, uh, well, then I, I could be wrong. Um, yeah, anyway, I heard that they were potentially fucking up on that, but it also could be real. So, yeah. Well, um, but again, yeah. you know, the initial invasion, it's, I wouldn't say it's irrelevant, but it kind of, it, mm. it, you don't know what the yeah, ultimate outcome really is going to be yep. just based on the, that initial invasion. Right. So, but here's the thing is that if, if Putin loses this, do you think he's going to stay in power? I mean, there's not a chance there's already yeah. people protesting this in Russia. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what, you know, kind of numbers they're showing in Russia, but protesting in Russia is very different than protesting in the United States, right? Yeah. Um, no, it's seriously there putting is a, your life on the line. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And for the fact, the, the fact that people are coming out and they're actually opposing this, I saw uh, a tennis player, I think it was a Russian tennis player, uh, write something on a camera That's right. uh, the other day. Yeah. Did you see that? I, I didn't see it, but it I heard like, it was just no war, right? Yeah. He just wrote, yeah. Yeah. He said, Putin, please, oh, no wow. war. Putin, please, yeah. And uh, I mean, this is a, a high profile individual right. and really putting some stake in there. And so um, where, okay, so there are two, two points where I think that this conflict um, could be really pivotal. Number one, um, if Putin, if Putin loses, then this could really be a signal of the decline of the nation state. And hmm. what I mean by that is um, there's a really interesting book 
that I read that really helps to contextualize a lot of what we're seeing in the world right now. It's called the um, the Sovereign Individual, and this book basically goes back from the Roman Empire, and they're arguing that there are these like 500 year cycles that happen where uh, civilization goes through these major pivots. Uh, whether it's true or not, or whether that bores out or not, is mm-hmm. uh, neither here nor there. But when you read um, the section about the fall of the Catholic Church, um, the empire of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. a lot of the sort of processes and social forces that were at play at that point are so similar to what we're seeing now. I mean, you could basically just swap out the actors, put in the exact same stories, and you'd be like, yeah, that's that happened you know, two weeks ago in the United States wow. or, or two weeks ago in Canada. Um, you know, it's very, very similar. Is and an so, yeah, I'm sorry. Is there an example that comes to mind? Well, so I, one of the problems that I think we're facing right now in the United States is a severe uh, lack of, um, I don't know if you want to say faith mm, or yeah, trust sure, in yeah. individuals, but institutions, yeah. you know, um, and it's not just government, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's media, it's government, it's, uh, academia, it's science. Right. And, and, um, let me just, <laughs> can I take a quick sidestep here? Please. Um, I was at the information warfare conference in 2018 or 2019. And one of the things that came up was the high numbers of people who believe that the earth is flat. And, uh, you know, I think that they're just to establish my own position. I think there's an overwhelming amount of evidence to establish that the world is in fact, not flat, but (laughs) is spherical. However, um, people sort of laughed at the notion that people would believe that the world is flat. But I think the the more important issue here is that in order to believe that the world is flat implies that you have so little faith in the established institutions that are saying otherwise as to accept this other uh, belief, right? And so I think it's a warning signal, but it's not a warning signal of people's ignorance or or I'll say stupidity, I think it's a warning signal that people have lost tremendous faith. And, um, and when you look at what happened when the Catholic church was losing power, Mm. very similar sorts of, uh, behavioral patterns going on. And, um, and, uh, I'll, uh, Harken back to Balaji mm-hmm. uh, Sir for a second. He brought up the this idea that um, that you can uh, I can't remember what it's called, but you can basically pay to be pre-screened for boarding on the aircraft, right? Uh-huh. So yeah, that right. Uh, you know what I'm pre-check talking about the TSA. Or, yeah. What was it? Pre-check. I think yeah. Pre-check. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And so the notion is is that you can pay some amount of money, and a certain amount of your uh, suspicion as a terrorist goes away. <laughs> yeah. Well, how different is this from paying money to take a dead relative out of purgatory? Yeah. And this wow. and this is one of the things yeah. that Martin Luther brought up mm-hmm. in his theses against the Catholic Church, right? Is that it's it's not right that just paying money somehow changes someone's status. Right. And I think it's funny how how similar these two things really are. And so when when you when you read this book, the sovereign individual, 
what they say, and, and to put some context into this, this book was written, I think, in like 1997, okay. 98. Okay. And they're talking about what they call internet money. And when they describe the internet money, it's looking at it today, it's like, oh yeah, that's Bitcoin. Right. And that what they were predicting is that internet money would destroy the nation state the same way that the printing press and the discovery of the Americas destroyed the Catholic church wow. as the dominant force. And um, anyways, it, it's kind of a fascinating uh, parallels that we're seeing. So yeah, that makes if sense. Putin loses, yeah. So if Putin loses in in the Ukraine, not only does he probably sacrifice his position of power, but it establishes what is known as a diminishing returns on violence. Meaning that um, if you think of violence as as sort of this investment, right? Like you can go over to somebody, you can take over their their land, and then you can reap that economic reward. Okay, and um, what the authors of this book are saying is that the internet and what they call the internet money, it, they're shifting that return on violence. And basically, um, let's say that we talk about, again, I'll, I'll reference uh, abology here, but network states. If you had not a nation state, but a, a state of networked individuals that are distributed across the globe, uh -huh. and let's say that you have something like Bitcoin with a... Um, passphrase that you can use to unlock it or the the 20 words you could completely naked leave that country that's being invaded mm. pop up somewhere yep. else access your wallet buy yourself some clothes and go on about your business and if you work entirely online and you're able to access satellite internet now all of a sudden um somebody could spend an awful lot of money and um you know lives and other resources to capture physical terrain and gain very, very little from it. Interesting. And and so this this shift in the return on violence, it could upset the entire structure of what we know to be true today. Wow. Right. And so when you think about it in those terms, um what's happening in Ukraine right now is um it could be pivotal. And the other point here is that um I believe that uh, Russia has been denied uh, SWIFT access for their five largest banks or something. I think you're right. Yeah, it's like a limited um, It's a limited uh, sanction, but yeah, it's, it's removing some access to that, right? Yeah. So what happens if Putin says, okay, we're going to go, uh, we're going to shift to Bitcoin as our international standard. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and if India, because they've already been talking, he's been talking to the prime minister of India about establishing some sort of a financial... Um, trade agreement. If India were to do the same thing simultaneously, um, I think that that could knock the dollar out wow. as well as the digital yuan as uh, world currency contenders, right? And what what would really be the downside to Putin? I mean, I'm not an economist. I don't really understand all the implications, but I'd really like to know because, you know, again, these are two two points that if they, if they were both to occur could really under undermine the legitimacy of the concept of a nation state. And at that point, you know, all bets are off. That's so surreal because that pull towards cryptocurrencies is happening on both sides in that case, right? Because Exactly. Yeah, because if you're saying, you know, that's an alternative to SWIFT, that's interesting for Russia. And then, you know, I've been reading reports of people who are like, 
you know, and sometimes you take this stuff with a grain of salt because there's a lot of reasons why people, you know, play up crypto. But these folks are like, hey, like this just saved my life. Like I'm in Poland right now and I had nothing. I literally came across a border naked, as you said, but I have access to my right. Ether, my Bitcoin. Um, yeah. So, well, and um, I saw uh, Kevin Kevin O'Leary, the uh, Shark Tank guy, talking about this. Mm-hmm. And he was talking, and I'd never thought about Bitcoin in this terms, but he was looking at it as um, friction frictionless international um transactions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh so he was looking at it from that end as more of like an um not an investor but uh you know what i'm trying to say like an international trader right which i wish i had the kind of net worth that i could worry about those kinds (laughs) of things but i don't but um but it's interesting that that's how he saw it because when when viewed from that uh frame then i think that it could be a competitor with Swift. Well, um, you know, just to touch on maybe just a couple more topics around Ukraine before we wrap today. Uh, thank you for your, sure. your time. I know we're going a little over, but um, you know, I, I, I like. I guess one topic that I'm curious to hear about is just more of the disinformation. Like, you know, I one of the things that has seemed like the case to me in this is like it seems like Russia has been somewhat successful in their disinformation campaigns in the last few years, but they maybe it feels like they're kind of getting overwhelmed in this by the amount of public information. Uh, but I'm curious if you can just tell us anything more about kind of the disinformation campaigns that they've been having going on or just your thoughts there. Sure. Um, I guess to ask a clarification, you'd mentioned lost in the noise. What, uh, which oh, noise? Would- well, you know, it's like, um, I guess the observation there that it seemed like I was trying to make was um, like when, when stories were coming about out about the Ukraine, you would get like one a week or one a month or something like that for the past you know six months. And it seemed like Russia could kind of have like a counter narrative that was consistently coming out with each one of those. But now when it's just hundreds of YouTube videos coming out or, you know, there's so many different mm. news agencies on the ground, it, just, it feels like maybe that's getting overrun. Um, right. I don't know if that's a case or not. But. From from the Russian side or from uh, the like Ukrainian the, the, side or from like both? Like the Russians are losing that disinformation battle um, oh, that's at interesting. this point. But, but I, don't know. No, I don't know if that's the case. Yeah. Um, so again, I haven't been tracking all of the events mm-hmm. uh, sure, yeah. in real time. So I, I can't really speak to those, but I will speak in, in a little bit more general terms. Yeah, makes sense. Um, I will say, <laughs> I, I don't know if this is a compliment or not, but uh, there's probably no one better in the world at disinformation than the Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they had, um, I cannot remember the, the name of the group, but basically under the czar in like the 18... 50s 1860s they already had a group dedicated wow. towards you know disinformation so this is something that they've been practicing for a very long time and they're very good at it and i think it's interesting how they sort of formulate it um in almost in terms of chess <laughs> yeah. and um yeah you, you so, hear those chess uh, metaphors come up time and time again when there's political statements given by russian officials i found that yeah, <laughs> always yeah, yeah. Well, and, and so, um, oh, there are a couple really good books, uh, one written by Thomas Ridd, and I cannot remember the, the title of it. We can put it in the show notes. So the yeah. other one is um, Unmasking Mascarova, and on that one, I can't remember the author's name. But um, Mascarova is sort of this, um, it's kind of like, I think it, it translates to something like theater, and um, 
I'm sorry, I mispronounced it, Maskarovka. Mm. Um, and um, that's that's a term that they use for the, the disinformation. And um, how do I put this? Um, well, okay, so one of the there was a there was a KGB agent that that wrote a book about um, being an agent of disinformation during the Cold War, mm-hmm. and he wrote about how. <laughs> so he was uh, stationed at the American. Uh, embassy, so the Russian embassy in D.C. when uh, President Kennedy was uh, assassinated. And from his perspective, this was like a major panic moment for the KGB because if the, you know, if the Americans believed that the KGB was behind uh, President Kennedy's assassination, I mean, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis was what, two, three years before that. So, I mean, wow. we could have had an all-out nuclear war very, very easily. Yeah. And so he um, basically got orders right away from uh, Moscow to start spinning stories. And so to understand how that worked, he had recruited uh, prominent journalists. He had recruited um, uh, prominent academics. And these were people that he had as sources working, you know, basically working for him as, you know, a KGB officer assigned to uh, Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And so his assignment was basically to put out spin. And he said that, uh, you know, years and years later, when he saw that one of these uh, stories, one of these conspiracy theories ended up in Oliver Stone's uh, JFK <laughs> movie, that he knew that he had he had done a good job wow. <laughs> years and years before. Yeah. Um, so the reason I bring that up is that um, I think it's, it's easy for um, at least Americans, because I think to a certain extent, Americans are naive to this. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. I just mean that we have a high degree of trust in the United States, uh, in, in other people and institutions, even though that's been falling, it's still higher than it is in a lot of other parts of the world. And, um, if you think about what he was doing, and, and again, this is back in the 1960s is he's recruiting trusted entities within a foreign country to use those as conduits for spreading disinformation, right? And so the thing to remember about Russian disinformation is that sometimes the sources that it comes from um, may not have anything to do with Russia whatsoever. So interesting. You, you have to be very, very careful about what you're seeing from all sides uh, because you really don't know where this is, this is um, originating for, from. So another uh, example and I think Thomas Ridd gives this in his book, is um, the uh, origins of the uh, AIDS epidemic, I think, in, in Africa. There was a disinformation campaign that was launched by the Soviets that went something along the lines of that the um, United States was spreading AIDS throughout the African continent through um, vaccinations. Oh, wow. Okay. And so, you know, and this was meant to, you know, erode trust in the United States within Africa and also just basically general uh, spreading of distrust. So, you know, these things being examples, historical examples, the only reason I I bring those up is to sort of contextualize what we're seeing right now. So um, this is the level of um, sort of chess strategy that they're employing when they're when they're talking about disinformation. Um, What... um, so, I was curious on just one point of clarification. Yeah. So you you were yeah. saying, was it, um, you were saying kind of like, be careful that it, like, is it cu- coming from other actors, even though it looks like Russian disinformation? Right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Exactly. Um, and they, 
So a lot of this came out after the the Cold War, mm-hmm. right? So, and that's why it's a little hard to speak to current things because obviously they're not mm-hmm. uh, sharing yeah. uh, what what they're doing right now. Yeah. But uh, what was the name of the? Uh, I think it was the Matrovka Matrovka Archive. There's this huge two volume uh, series of books that uh, there was a. A KGB archivist who, uh, when the USSR fell, basically grabbed up all of these uh, historical documents documenting KGB operations around the world, and you know, basically, I think threw them into a briefcase. And you know, the um, the Berlin Wall had just fell, and um, the Soviet Union is crumbling. Basically, you know, he takes these things, throws them into a suitcase, and um, uh, goes to uh, the United Kingdom, wow. and through a long series of, of events, a uh, portion of these end up getting uh, published in these uh, Matrovka um, archives. And because um, of that, we we actually have you know insight into some of the historical uh, TTPs, the tools, tactics, procedures that uh, the KGB was using. Well, the reason that this is important today is um, Putin came up as a KGB guy, right? Yeah. Uh, I cannot remember if he later served in the SVR. He may have, but he started out in the KGB. And then he you know, rose through the political ranks and then eventually got to the position where he's, he's been in now for the past few years. The reason that that's important is that these um, this was the environment that he formed in, right? So this is how he thinks. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, so I guess I'll just kind of leave it there. But so I, I really, I strongly believe that that disinformation. Well, there's the new acronym is MDM, uh, mis, dis, and malinformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that this is playing a huge role in what's going on right now. Um, but yeah. yeah, and I don't know. It'll be interesting to see where where it all comes out. Totally. I'm gonna have to think for a little bit on that whole uh, thing with the ghost of Ukraine because yeah, it is it is interesting the. Um, Cause that's a whole gray area, right? Like, is it, um, is it, uh, ethical to create a, you know, misinformation, even if it's to, you know, rally for the side of good, right? But. Well, um, and it's not like we're, you know, immune to that here in the United States. Um, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. who is it? Uh, Nathan Hale, uh, was, uh, hanged as a spy by the British, um, and he was uh, engaged in an espionage uh, operation on the behalf of uh, George Washington. He got caught, and uh, they hanged him. And, and um, the uh, rebels' side, so the side that became the United States, put out a uh, like a news article about uh, the hanging. And in it, uh, they said that his last words were that uh, my I have what? Let's see how. I have but one regret, or my only regret is that I have but one life to give for my country. That's it. Yeah. Completely fabricated from my understanding. Really? That's not at all. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But the, uh, you know, the spin doctors in the Washington camp said, you know, hey, we can, we can turn a loss into a win. So let's do this. And so, yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, I can only wish us, um, Wish us success in, in navigating this this jungle because, yeah, I guess you know we got a long storied history of it, but it just gets more and more wild as time goes on. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, I just want to thank you so much for for coming on today, uh, Matt, and um, it's uh, this has been quite a pleasure. 
Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's been a lot of uh, it's been very enjoyable. Absolutely. And if people want to find out more about um, uh, you and the consultancy, where where would they uh, where would they look? Uh, well, my my personal website is drmatthewcanum.com, but it's uh, doctor is dr so drmatthewcanum.com. Yep. Perfect. And then my consultancy is uh, belay seven. It's b e l a y number seven.com short Perfect. for beyond layer seven. We'll make sure to put those in the notes. Any last things that you want to, that we maybe missed or if you, any shout outs you want to give? Yeah. Um, no, not right now, but, uh, you know, well, you know what, actually there's one last thing yep. if, if you don't Please. mind. Yeah. Um, I, I do have a couple of international collaborators mm-hmm. and something that we are, um, beginning to, uh, look at are some of these uh, issues that you've uh, that we've discussed today mm-hmm. of fifth generational warfare of uh, mis mal dis- disinformation and so we are um, beginning an informal sort of uh, collaboration with something that we're calling the cognitive security institute nice. and uh, right now the uh, very uh, proto uh, website for that is cognitive security dot institute that's fantastic or is there something that you're anything that you're looking for as a group? Are you looking for collaborators or funding or uh, like, developer? Developer, okay, <laughs> all right, great. Yeah, yeah, and uh, funding would be nice as well, but uh, right now a developer would be really, really helpful. Well, maybe we can uh, give a shout out there. That's awesome. Excellent, thank you. Well, hey, uh, thank you again, and um, yeah, I wish you uh, wish you success and uh, keeping us all safe out here because uh, <laughs> I think we definitely need it. All right. Hey, thank you, Gavin. Absolutely. All right.